Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. And welcome back to the OMG MotoGP podcast. On the show today, all the reaction to the biggest storylines coming out of Indonesia from the MotoGP has the Jorge Martin of old reared its head again. And there was lots to talk about, including Pecco losing his championship lead, then regaining it all in the same roller coaster weekend. Uh, so we'll have all of that to chat about. But elsewhere on the Motormouth Media Network this week, you can catch up with former F1 mechanic Mark Priestley over on the Motormouth F1 podcast, where he talks all about the left lessons he learned in F1 and how he translates that into his everyday life and if you're into your paddle tennis it's a brand new phenomenon that is taking over the sporting world I assure you in episode one with hosts paddle expert Ben Nichols and uh, US pro paddle player Britt Dubins is available now just search for the paddle movement podcast but there was so much action across the motorcycle racing world at the weekend and that is what we are here for uh, and focusing to start with on the world of BSB where a champion was crowned and so I'm very pleased to say joining me Harry Benjamin and former Grand Prix rider and British champion Keith Ewan this week is series and race director of the British Superbike Championship Stuart Higgs welcome Stuart thank you for taking the time have you recovered from your weekend yet? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, the, the morning after um, uh, any kind of season ender is always a, a weird and surreal feeling. So you look out uh, my office window overlooks the last turn at Brands Hatch and when you're in the same place you were 24 hours ago, but it's visually completely different. There's about 49,850 people less on the premises and all the colours gone, all the signage is down and all the trucks have moved out. It, it, it's just a bit, a bit surreal and weird and... Yeah, it's a bit of a climb down day, but you know, it, it's you know, what a day. I'm sure we're going to talk about it in a second, but uh, yeah, it, it, uh, we're, it's, it's a, the, the day after a great day for sure. I love that feeling after a race meet and after all the drama and all the everything that we've we've seen during, especially if you've been there to to, to witness it per, firsthand. It's like that old 1960s movie Grand Prix, if you remember with. Uh, uh, where where the, the, the all the the rubbish blows down the the start and finish straight when you walk in the track the day after when it's nice and calm and the birds are singing in the in the trees it's a it's a very very romantic exotic feeling being at a racetrack especially one like Brands Hatch for me Brands Hatch is is one of the world's most iconic racetracks and uh, you have to say Stuart you could not have engineered a better finish to BSB but before we go there I mean. Obviously, BSB is what you're known for here in the UK, but because we've got an international audience, Australia, uh, the States, obviously, and quite a lot of other people from around the world that watch the podcast, just give us a flavour of what else you do because you're involved with the FIM. You're at, quite often at MotoGP officiating there. Uh, Moto America, you've always got your eyes on what's going on on another Superbike series in America, of course, as that develops as well. So what else do you do around the world? Well, yeah, principally, I'm the series director for British Superbikes, but I'm also um, on the FIM's uh circuit racing commission and within that group there's the uh the much uh much talked about MotoGP stewards panel and i am uh, a member of that esteemed organization um so happy to to talk within the the, the confines of what's appropriate on, on that little front so i do um probably eight or nine grand prix a year and i'm i'm out to the, the thai grand prix the qatar grand prix and the uh, malaysian grand prix uh, before the the end of the year, so still a, a fairly full schedule. Um, I was uh, part of the, the the formation of Moto America back in 2015, giving some advice to Wayne Rainey, who's become an excellent um, friend of mine, and uh, Chuck Axland as they you know basically picked up the US series from the doldrums and set them on their way, just basically turning their series into something with a more international um, organization framework. It was obviously very American. Uh, in terms of procedural wise, which which was led to the the uh, the demise of what was certainly pre BSB, arguably the strongest domestic championship. But um, no, please have taken that um, accolade off them. And um, yeah, it's good, healthy rivalry. But uh, you know, it's good for international 
uh, championships to all be run at a high standard. I mean, the better the national championships are, the better the world championship uh, should be in theory. So, uh, yeah, they're, they're the two principal international appointments uh, that I have. I've sort of dabbled a little bit with uh, some stuff looking at the FIA, but um, yeah, I don't think that's going uh, far very quickly. And um, if you think FIM and some motorcycle racing uh, things, I'll have some difficulties. I can assure you. I think uh, double the wheels, double the double the bureaucracy. I think is the is the thing. So it's it's interesting. I mean, um, yeah, I've only got a few more working years left in me, and I'm, I'm trying to pack a lot in. You're embedded though in the bikes. I mean, like this is not something that came up when you were an adult. This is from, from going back to, to it's man and boy, isn't it? That you've you've been in at trackside. Yeah, I mean, look. I mean, I see it looking out um, over overlooking Brands Hatch, uh, where I can have my earliest memories of sort of literally being three or four years old, um, hiding behind a straw bell. My dad was one of the chief marshals down down here, and uh, it was a bit of a, a bit of an agitator. Didn't like the establishment. Was was ahead of his time. He was always doing deals with oil companies for overalls for the marshals and uh, cigarettes for the marshals with uh, Philip Morris and people like that. And, um, but uh, challenging the old, uh, ACU, uh, autocracy that was around at the time, um, for, for doing things better. And I think it, a lot of that rubbed off on me. I intuitively saw stuff, um, literally, and I absolutely mean this as a, a nine, 10, 11 year old, seeing people clattering to catch fence poles and bare arm co. I, I knew that was wrong. I knew my dad was always pushing and arguing about why this stuff wasn't working and I and you know it was a period where you know I had never I, I loved racing I you know I'm from the Barry Sheen period I was seven when he won his uh, second world championship and you know I dreamt of being a motorbike racer um had all the posters and and everything and was embedded in the the emotion of it all but I'd seen some I'd seen, seen, seen some bad stuff and um that resonated and I couldn't ever race my parents never had the funds to to start me racing but then you couldn't anyway so you'd have to have been 16 or 17 so it was not even uh, on the agenda but I, I found myself you know being a marshal pretending to be older than I was as a 12 or 13 year old I was on a marshal post doing a better job than a lot of people around me I was starting races as a 14 year old at like club races at Snedderton doing the start and finish check and flag you know age wasn't a age wasn't a thing it was completely illegal and and the insurance companies wouldn't have liked it very much but um, that's the path I chose. And, uh, by, by 21, I was uh, running events uh, full-time. And that then got me introduced to a great man called Robert Fennell. And I always, on the uh, the day after the final round of the British Championship, say, hey, Robert, this one was, was for you as well. Because for everything that I've done, and you know, Jonathan has supported me in everything I do, Jonathan Parmenat is, this whole journey was started by a great man called Robert Fennell. He took on the establishment well and truly, broke everything away from the, the regulatory body, the ACU at the time, to create something called MCRCB, which is the, our own sanctioning body, which was was unheard of at the time, hugely political, and that set BSB on its way. I mean, we saw at the time British touring cars being the um, the premier motorsport in the UK with all the manufacturer involvement, terrestrial TV coverage on grandstand, and we always knew, everyone in bike racing knew, look, our product is better, but we're just crap at organising anything. There's no, we can't park three trucks in a line in the paddock, you know. There's no such thing as team team wear and uniform and um you know it was just a mess and um, you know people like colin senior a, a guy that created they got the teams together to sort themselves out and by 95 robert uh, sorted uh, mcrcb out and by 96 we had the long-term bbc grandstand deal for three years robert backed it with his two four sports donnington organization and that set the championship on its course and obviously the few uh, trials and tribulations along the way, different political changes, circuit owner changes, and then all the, the planets aligned in 2008 after Jonathan Palmer had the MSV circuits for four years. Uh, we all got together and then I was running BSB, he was running the circuits, we aligned everything and created the the MSVR structure that's run British Supervisors from 2008 to, to present day and that changed everything. But uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a long story, and you know, going on a bit. But I don't know if you saw it, Keith. Uh, you know, the man and boy. I mean, there's, I had a picture of me on Dave Potter's bike, the late great Dave Potter, and it was a guy that was was much. I mean, he was you no, know, he would have been a a, a Bridewell Irwin type rider of his day, Yorkshireman, but lived down in down here in Kent. And it always came down to Brands Hatch Finals Weekend, the MCN Superbike Championship. Dave, the Ron Haslam, Roger Marshall, you were in the mix in a, a few years later. And uh, just he passed away. And again, tragic circumstances with something that was the only 
well, if anything can good come out of a bad situation, it was a main part of the uh, the documentary that Roger Cook did for the BBC uh, that Mike Trimby was very much part of that showed what an absolute disaster motorbike racing was, how it was run, and uh, you know naming the individuals concerned that did it. You know, Dave Potter basically hit an unprotected barrier, and then not as bad as that was, it was tried to be you know basically covered up uh, from from my memory of the day. And uh, you know, Dave Potter. Uh, the bike has been rebuilt that uh, he was uh, riding in the 79 and 80 season. There's a picture of me at one of the bike shows in London sitting on it. The bike's been restored and we got um, uh, the bike back to Brands Hatch this weekend with the Potter family to give a, a, a nod to a, a great man. And uh, um, another guy you might know, Les Thacker from BP, he was the BP trade baron. Uh, cars and bikes, I mean, this guy launched careers in the UK for people like Nelson Piquet, Derek Warwick, Stephen South, great motor racing drivers. And uh, he's put this project together. We were able to do something really good. So, yeah, man and boy, as you say. And, um, yeah, I don't regret a moment of it. You know what? I say it all the time, but passion in sport is 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 the key. And I think, I mean, all the years on the back of my bloody hands are stood up with you speaking, Stuart. I've got to say, because it's, it's so interesting to hear that kind of depth and the collaboration as well. It's one of those things where... I think sometimes you're the man at the pinnacle of this most of the time in the UK and, and you get the stick and the accolades in equal equal bloody numbers quite often um, for making some of the decisions you make. But the fact of the matter is, is you do, you've actually put a very, very good team around you to, to draw that forward, to move it forward each and every time that, that there's something that comes up that needs. I mean, I, I've witnessed some of the trauma that you've had. You mentioned earlier on, you've been through some terrible times occasionally. Brands Hatch, I mean, a few years ago with a big accident that happened, right at the end of the day that that, that, that you know, a young fellow was killed at. I remember how much that, that drew on your resources regarding how you got over something like that. No, well, I, I remember this day the thing that you said in commentary the week after when we assembled at Knock Hill, and, you know, I'm haunted by that day, and uh, it's the most investigated incident ever in, in British motorcycle racing. Uh, for those that don't know, I'm sure you'll find the details, but... It, you know, I, it, there was a consideration for prosecuting me as well, and you know, when you when you start having that level of uh, discussion, um, you know, it hits you. But I remember, say, the week after you and I met at Knock Hill, and you looked at me, and your words in commentary, you said I'd aged twenty years in seven days, and I think you're probably being a bit gracious to me that day. But yeah, um, we take it seriously. I've always taken it seriously. You know, the bedrock of experience. You know, it it it. It comes from everything I've seen, everyone I've spoken to. You know, I just absorb everything internationally. I, 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 don't, I don't shy away from if I see a good idea somewhere else and I think it can be applied to us, I'll, I'll do it. And, you know, I've imparted a lot of stuff into other championships. I've never had any credit for it, never particularly asked for it. But there's procedural stuff that goes on in other championships. And uh, when it happens, I always have a little wry smile. I mean, uh, just give me a little phrase. I mean the word long lap you ever heard of that and uh, the quick start procedure and various other things so they come from the house of Higgs. <laughs> Jonathan Palmer I mean Jonathan Palmer he's been key in a lot of this in recent years hasn't he I mean JP uh, not everybody's favorite that's got to be said um, but from a business point of view there isn't anybody sharper as far as I'm concerned I mean I, I was privileged to have, have had a partnership with him back in the SDC builders days when when a building company sponsored him in Formula One and me in 500s but Jonathan always struck me, I always called him the Terminator because he had one of those, he'd walk into a room full of money and he'd, he'd give the big sweep, da 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 and he spotted all the influential people to talk to within one sweep of the room and would have it covered. But Jonathan and you seem to have worked, I, I have to be honest here, I, I, I'm, I'm really impressed with the way that you've both managed to work together. I thought there'd be an explosion because I know you're quite a strong personality and he is as well. Yeah. But yeah, you've, you've pushed things forward pretty damn well as a partnership yeah i mean it was it was it was going to go one or two ways i think you're absolutely right and the first time we met after about the sort of the 30 seconds one of the i, I walked out of the room and we would sort of chase each other around the car park and had another go at the first first meeting but you know it all went back to the you know when he took over the circuits there it was a disaster in uh, winter of 03 into 04 basically it was you no know, that there was uh the circuits were on their knees it was all a big reaction to the uh, the British motorsport promoter Octagon period that was all embedded in the the whole thing started with the Brands Hatch Formula One deal that uh, that was done in the name of Interpublic and Octagon. Uh, 
it could never obviously run at Brandsage. Brandsage didn't have planning permission for the uh, the changes that were likely to be required. Then the deal had to be taken to Silverstone. Silverstone was then be, would have to be leased by the BRDC to Octagon on a pretty high rate. It was a, a huge deal to uh, Formula One management at the time or the the promoter of F1, the the rights deal. Uh, British Superbike, British touring cars were all wrapped up in it. And at the end of the day, you know, this 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 UK circuit operation was significantly draining the resources of what at the time I think was the second or third largest advertising company in the world, a company called Interpublic. And they divested themselves of all UK um, motorsport activities and a number of people were around and it was a bit of a, a fire sale to, to move the circuits on. And Jonathan Palmer and his business partners, Sir Peter Ogden and... Uh, John Britton, the late John Britton at the time, were ready to go and and got the circuits. And instantly, um, it was obvious that they were just these rotting um, places that, you know, the capex for most circuits was a tin of paint if they could be bothered. Um, probably not the paintbrush. Um, so he immediately took about it, stripped all the bad stuff out. And obviously within that, wrapped up was British Superbikes. And no, Jonathan's didn't know much about it, never been to a BSB race was pushing me quite hard and I basically put the entire house on on the first round of the championship that year which was a brand's hatch and said right this is what's going to happen it was like I'm not paying for this I'm not paying for that and I basically said well okay I'll make you a deal if we get over a certain number we're on and this will never be discussed again and it was a beautiful spring day um I think you might be you must have been doing um yeah. skycoms that day and uh I said, right, John, come and watch the race with me. I thought the, the one thing that will impress him is me if I'm in pure show-off mode. And uh, the race started on lap two going down Paddock Hill. Glenn Richards and Sean Emmett tagged. And it was, it was we were on the indie circuit. So it was a 45-second lap, and there's two bikes barreling down the road. And he's just yelled at the top of his voice like, oh, whatever, grabbed my arm. And I've gone I've sort of like, no, and punched him in the face accidentally. <laughs> I've done all my drill. It was a safety car deployment, medical rescue all in about a 30 second kind of time frame bang 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 the procedures were all being fired out then look back at him and it was that and he was well, just recovering from obviously having me flicked him in the eye but uh he was just i don't think he believe, could believe it and the rest of the race was you know equally amazing and he really got absorbed into it and the thing with jonathan he's like a sponge he just sees everything and absorbs it and then the, the second race of the day sean emmett who he'd met um, oh, he'd seen earlier crash, won the race, and he shook him by the hand. Sean swarmed because he had sort of some crunched knuckles, and I think, and, and all blood-stained hands. And I think at that moment he saw the the rawness of BSB, and he was hooked. And we basically said, "Right, that's it." No, he said, "This is this amazing." I want it. I said, "Well, you know, kind of someone else is the promoter. It was Dawn in UK at the time." I said, "Well, you know, that's kind of come and work for me." And I, basically, we did a dance for about three years. Of um, I was I played very hard to get. And there was a time at the end of 07 that we did it. But the, the best thing was, it. I mean, when he had the circuits, I mean, I said, right, when I got his ear, I said, right, listen, we've got, there's some things on the table. I know you've, you've arrived and there's some, there's some stuff, but hey, look, Cadwell Park, beautiful track, but it was, it was contemporary about 50 years ago. So, right, instantly summoned John Reynolds, Paul Denning, some other riders, myself, we all flew up there. Looked at looked at the track. The, if you remember Hall Benz, the, the, the bank was on the, on the white line. Made a phone call. I want an earth mover here tomorrow. Get rid of all that. We got to the hairpin. So basically, we walked out of the clubhouse. The first caller, John Merrill said, oh, we need some air fence on there. Air fence there. Done. Uh, whole bend's done. Then we got to the hairpin, and there was this this kind of old wives' towel that you could never move the barrier back at the hairpin because it, uh, it was Crown Estate property, the other side of the barrier. That wasn't a hurdle. We just made another phone call. Someone, I presume, the Crown Estate, and went, I want to buy... X number of acres beyond the barrier line. I want the deal done by the end of the day. Um, and literally the end of the next week, the barrier had gone. And it was that dynamism. And he was on our side. He's been on our side from the start. And, um, you know, I think it was, if it, if it all been happened in 04, it wouldn't have been the right time. But the championship had some strong years in 4, 5 and 6. We went terrestrial TV with ITV 6 and 7, which moved everything on again. We had a great period, the Lavia Kianari type period. And then end of 07, again, Dorner had kind of done what they wanted to do with um, having a bit of a superbike interest in the UK. There was obviously at the middle, it was the middle of the superbike and Flamini, or the flamini Dorner tension. This was a bit of a poke in the eye to them. But at the end of the day, their interest wasn't with us. Um, but we were on good terms with Dorner, really good terms. Uh, they were good to us, and I think we're good for them as a, as a, 
as a as an ally we're obviously in the both in the promotion business but um we talk all the time i speak to carlos pretty we, we pop each other a whatsapp message what do you think we you know they're, they're, they're good people and um by LA, it was it was all us i mean um so we've just given the the, the whole series massive stability and that's the thing the moment you can say we're doing this way for the next five years, six years, seven years, and that's what the championship needed. If if you all remember, Keith, you could do nothing in BSB on a, on anything other than an annualised term. A TV deal would r- rarely go over two years, um, not even that sometimes. So you could never expect anybody to make concrete plans if they didn't know that the moment they signed for something, they were potentially within a twelve month term. Which begs the question: Where to next? I mean, you covered off the Donington Park thing. MSVR ended up buying a massively long lease. At Donington Park, when uh, the Formula One aspirations all came apart and the track was in awful condition after it had been messed around with by some idiot. But now that, that, that it's back on track and MSVR have got Donington, you've covered off the two areas, particularly for MotoGP. World Superbike run to a slightly different Formula when it comes to safety. But when it comes to MotoGP, there's only two tracks in the UK you can use. Donington just about, I think now. Silverson, of course. Allegiance-wise, there's, there's a massive gap at the minute in the UK. 45,000 people going to Silverstone, despite the fact that they've worked so hard at Silverstone to put us on a great British Grand Prix. It's just not doing the numbers for the amount. Silverstone are not making any money out of it. It's obviously prestige-wise. They've got Formula One and they've got um, MotoGP, so that's a big deal for them as far as a, a, a ego's concerned, if, you, if, I, if I will make it that way. But Donington's sort of sitting in the background with MSVR over the top of it. Are you torn between the two tracks as a person rather than as a as a as a series director? Because there's a lot of fan base that want the British Grand Prix to go to Donington, think it will be a better Grand Prix. Um, I think I'm just gonna sound Silverstone. I've got to be very careful because I have a, a relationship with them professionally. I'm just gonna say that Silverstone just frustrates me hugely. And perhaps we'll just leave it at that. I think, and I think well, you can see like our calendar. Because obviously, and when you've got 400,000 people going through the gate for Formula One and prepared to spend daft amounts of money to sit in the grandstand, I, I think the demographic of people that go to bike meetings and go to car meetings are completely different. Silverstone have nailed it when it comes to Formula One. Social media, since they've got Bernie out of the way. <laughs> 650 million quid as he paid recently for his tax bill. <laughs> uh, probably shouldn't go there, but anyway, so that will give you some indication of how much money he was making out of it in the past. And that's apparently only a quarter of his fortune, 650 mil. Um, but getting back to the bikes, we want something different. There needs to be something different for motorcycles. Um, Donington has that fan background. But I wonder whether it would be that much difference. It needs a lot of money spending on it still, Donington Park. But Jonathan strikes me as a guy that probably would spend the money. Any inside yeah. line on that? Well, no, I mean, I feel you've got to just do things that drive the business forward. And um, it's about the, the products. And, the, and you've got to be very careful that, and I think this is um, perhaps the MotoGP question, is that if you were uh, taking a five-year MotoGP contract, you're never quite sure what you, you know, you might know what you're getting in year one, but you don't know what you're getting in year five. And if you've got to spend uh, a lot of work to get a property in a in a, a GP compliant way, but the the product in year four or five isn't quite what you had, had in mind, you know you've there's no upside to that. You know, and it's, it's one weekend a year, and uh, the business doesn't run on one weekend a year. It runs on you know fifty what fifty two weeks of the year, seven days a week. And um, the Halo events are great, but you know I think that's the. the Silverstone, you know, and the the Formula One thing, you know, they've got this incredible destination event um, with music and 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 Formula One, which is clearly on a, you know, it's been on a crest with the Drive to Survive thing. You know, they were, you know, it's not down to, uh, I think it's maybe down to lockdown to luck. You know, Drive to Survive hit the world at a time where people were literally by law not allowed to do anything other than watch Netflix, and that immersed a whole new audience into. Uh, this world that they probably had no idea existed and it was all very glamorous and all these incredible rivalries and of course then we had the uh, the Verstappen Hamilton um, gig the, the the following year and that sort of fueled it further but I just wondered out and I read some things um, that maybe some of the hypers just started to, to drop away because if you watch Netflix and that drive to survive with an eye from 
say my perspective, I'm a, de- I'm a detail guy. You know, when you see um, a wheel-to-wheel contact to Red Bull ring and the reaction on the pit wall is at Monza, you can see what they've done there. You know, they've created basically a, you know, they've, it, it's poetic license to amplify something to make it really good and, and dramatic for the screen. But how many races they got left? Six six races left. I mean, I, I the only F1 race I've paid attention to was Australia this year where I just laughed when they did a restart with one lap to go and was surprised at the outcome and then had a 45-minute discussion on how to do an order in the pit lane to drive around behind the car for one lap. And then people have a go at FIM uh, saying that they don't know what they're doing. I mean, I thought that was just ridiculous. And having seen some inner workings with, with that, I'm not surprised they came to that conclusion, but hardly the best for the show, is it? And, uh, um, you know, I think the hype's dropping and I think they've got they've got some challenges. I think Vegas is going to be this huge show business and you'll see every flipping Hollywood actor or American celebrity you've ever seen of. But, you know, every time this happens, I think, that, again, the a lot of the fan base is getting disconnected and when the the casual transient audience sort of says right we've done our f1 thing for two or three years it's not it was quite good in that couple of years we watched it on telly and hamilton just happened but now it's a bit boring we'll go and move and watch was it paddle stick or paddle ball or something you <laughs> paddle tennis yeah could be, absolutely you know, it could be paddle t- when they do the, the paddle tennis documentary um they might all move <laughs> to that and at which point that audience falls away a little bit and you look around and you go, well, where's your, where's your hardcore audience? They'll go, well, actually, you didn't want us. You priced us out of the market. And actually, we've we've found something else to do as well. We've gone and found, I don't know, BSB, because it actually remembers what this was about in the first place. So are you not looking, um, with that all that in mind, we've spoken about it, you know, Keith alluded to it every time we post Silverstone, we talk about how there's not enough fans or MotoGP is not even in the, the papers. It's not in the magazine, the sports, the sports sections what? being talked about. And my first BSB event, I'm ashamed to say, was this year. And it was amazing because of the level of access that anybody could have. I was so afraid to walk anywhere because I was like, I don't think I've got the right pass. But you, everyone's so welcoming. The crowd, it was a great crowd. Everyone was so supportive. So, what? How do you see, or do you even want to sort of try and do what Formula One's done and, and and expand into that mainstream market, or is it all about not alienating who you currently have? Let me let me back up on that question as well. Then, with the demise of Mike Trimby out of Erta, and now Erta is going to be more of a committee than a single man led um, outfit. With Carlos Espeleta basically taking over more and more of a role from Carmelo, his father, that's a, the head of Dorna. With these shifts politically. Does that move us in the right direction as far as MotoGP is concerned and as far as you're concerned as a domestic series? Will we, can we expect, you think, us to start moving in, in, in a, a more dynamic um, arena, if you like, as far as uh, PR and marketing is concerned and as far as the sport is concerned? I think there will be some changes. I mean, I think the guy you haven't mentioned, and I've met him a couple of times, is Dan Rossomondo. Mm. Um, he's the guy from the NBA. I mean, I'm not saying we're going to go and have... Um, for 25 or four 15 minute races and uh, with two laps to go you've got uh pramac calling a timeout and he'll stop and decide what you can do for the next two corners but hey <laughs> maybe that is coming who knows but i think he's going to be instrumental i mean he is you know he, he must be on a big ticket he's obviously made a a huge uh family and professional move from from what one of the big three major u.s sports to come into the world of motorcycle racing and um We've had some interesting chats. He's been quite revealing, and um, I think he watches a bit what we do, and I think he understands. Certainly in the UK, I think he's he has an appreciation that we've cracked the code for the UK, and some of some of what we do could be appropriate for perhaps a, a British Motorcycle Grand Prix event that you know has some different elements to it. And I think that's really that direction that could go. I mean, obviously it's down to Silverstone as the promoter; it's their event, what they want to do. But you know. It, I mentioned earlier you know, the frustration of Silverstone, and and, and uh, I think they are in a difficult place. Um, they've, they've got it's all about F1, and and that resonates throughout the whole business. And despite they're trying to sort of promote this, oh, we really do like motorcycles. You know, it, it's you know they, they probably do know it's not been able to. We've we've made a decision jointly with us and Silverstone. There's no point in us going there. Um, you know, it doesn't work for them. I don't understand why it doesn't work for them. I think I know in some reasons why it doesn't but that's not a not a discussion for now um but it's a bit unfathomable and um you know it's it is a frustration it's a, you know it's a world-class facility i mean you've been around the world keith and harry you've seen other circuits in the world i mean silverstone is 
a, a flagship motorsport venue. It's got everything. It's got the best facilities. It's it's, it's an amazing race to race on. It's an amazing racetrack. I think it does suit car. I mean, the motorcycle racing is fantastic around there. The the visual impression to watch trackside isn't like a sitting on a grassy bank at Craner Curves or South Bank at Brands Hatch. That that's again that goes back to that. What does the the the, the fan want? You know. Silverstone will offer a seat. Well, most of the bike audience don't want a seat. They like to roam. They like to just cruise around and sort of, we're going to watch Quali 1 from this corner, Quali 2 from that corner. So it, it, it's just, uh, it's a, it's almost cultural. But that this is not a new thing. I mean, we used to go to you know, Silverstone once a year for the British Grand Prix and the, and the Marlborough Clubman's final uh, in the mid-80s. And Silverstone was that, that, that different place you went to. It had a different feel then, but you knew you were going to the car circuit. And I think... No matter how hard they try it, it just doesn't have this kind of authenticity for motorcycling. And I, I talked to Stuart Bringle a lot about this, and um, I don't think it's for the lack of trying uh, from their part. They are trying to do this, but you, you, somehow, if 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 you if you call someone, you know, we're, we're reaching out to the bikers, that in itself as a phrase is is not the what the audience likes to be described as. If you talk to them about the event. They'll call the event Moto, and so your officiant says, "Well, no, it's Moto Grand Prix or Moto GP. You know, call it by its real name." That that they're the first things that make um, a fan base go, you, "You don't really get us, and you don't really understand us." And it, I think they know that it's a different audience, but how to bring them there? And I'm not sure just sticking a good band on is enough to make people go and go and watch it. It, it may help, but again. It's a lot of money to put in there. Maybe people just want some better support races. You know, that's something that we could look at. We're looking at them with them. Is it just giving a better day out? You know, maybe people don't want the main race on a Sunday to be done by one thirty, and the feel that the day days. And so, it is, it is, it is quite conflicting. But and it's and it's, it's upsetting because you know we do put on the show. MotoGP this year has been fantastic, and in terms of the on track stuff, it should be getting a full house. And when it doesn't, it's it's just utterly frustrating. And um, yeah, would it be better at Donington? Yeah, I think there'll be some pluses, some minuses, but yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one. Well, talking of tricky ones, a um, couple of things that I want to go to. I mean, this we, we could actually speak for a couple of hours on this uh, podcast. I'm fairly sure we could make it a two-part with you, Stuart. There's no doubt about that. Um, the way MotoGP is going at the moment, uh, obviously rule-wise, we've, we've got a situation where they're almost perfect rules in that everything, doesn't matter whether it's across the frame, whether it's a V4, whatever it is, chassis-wise, we seem to be within a second, the top 15, 20 riders. Do you know, one of the things that I noticed at the weekend at Brands Hatch for British Superbikes was that it's almost a similar situation where you've got the rules to a point and the, the teams to a point where it is so competitive, it's very difficult to see much passing. Yeah, there is passing still down. Of course there is. Um, and at Brands Hatch, there's places you can make the pass. But you, we're almost in a situation where as soon as you get to a point where you've got the rules to, to, to make it more equal for everybody taking part, as we have in MotoGP, as you are aiming towards with, with BSB, probably more funding that, that differentiates people in, in BSB than, than, than in MotoGP. But the point is, is all of a sudden you've got a line astern. You have, it's a very difficult thing to make a pass through fast guys. Careful what you wish for. Yeah, it's always, I guess, the, the law of unintended consequences. Um, I mean, Superbike's going through a, a bit of a, well, a strange time in terms of uh, where we find ourselves. You know, the 1,000cc four-cylinder sports bike is, is you know, it, it, it's going to be extinct in a, you know, a few years down the line. I mean, we don't know when it will be, but, you know, they're not being sold in the numbers they were. I mean, the, the motorbike, that, that type of motorbike is going to be a bit like a fishing rod. It's going to you know you, you buy a fishing rod to, to, to go fishing, either recreationally or for sport. And that's what those bikes are for. Um, now, you, I mean, when was the last time you saw a, I know, a 1,000cc four-cylinder bike or, you know, a, a high-end sports bike just, just on the road somewhere, you know, in your everyday life? You just don't see it. You may see them on a Sunday run somewhere, but... It's getting few and far between, but what you do see is, uh, you know, the your, your GS thousand BMW, your Multistrada type people going, you know, using it as commuter tools. Uh, you see certainly more. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Smaller capacity bikes out there. So, you know, we've got to be, though, Superbike is the premier class in the UK and for many national championships and as a world championship. Yeah, it doesn't particularly reflect the the reality of sales in, in, in that sector. So... We've got to be really careful when we also means that it's unlikely there'll be any brand new, super new models coming down. They're all going to just be evolutions. It will be small, little, little refinements, maybe an, a, an extra R put on the, the model name of the bike or something like that. But so that what we've got now is kind of what we're going to have really for the next and probably closing era of this type of motorcycle. So it's, it's now about, I think, containment and pulling it back a little bit in some places as well and if you pull it back a little bit um you you start building that headroom back that maybe does address that um situation you talk about but certainly the other thing you know we a motorcycle could increase by five horsepower just like that a racetrack can't improve by 10 meters a runoff just like that you know the two are the two lines of um Im- improvements don't work either financially or structurally so You've got to slow that, no, slow it down, contain it. I mean, even you look at a circuit like Silverstone and you wince a bit when you see the entry speeds into Stowe or into um, Brooklands uh, or Magello Turn 1 or, or, or other corners like that. So, you know, it's a, it is a bit of a tricky time at the moment on that front. Well, Dorna have, have just announced um, World Superbike rules changing next year and into 2025. Obviously, MotoGP have got the big rule changes coming up in 2027. Um, is it enough? I mean, world superbikes are being pulled back a little bit from MotoGP. Because, I mean, we talked about this, we alluded to this in a previous podcast, in that we can't have MotoGP rules slowing down their motorcycles and then on some tracks being overtaken by production bikes with a bit of a tuning kit stuck on them in world superbike. So they've all got to be pulled back in unison. I mean, are the rules enough to 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 drag this back is MotoGP relevant anymore having said what you've just said i mean are we heading into an, an era where suddenly we're racing motorbikes and developing um strategies and, and 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 the way the bikes work into an area where that's never going to be relevant uh hey, look it's difficult i mean it, it, there's there's no right answer i don't think i mean certainly we have to be mindful that um you know i mean suzuki put it out a few years ago was the big wake-up call that it didn't matter what contract they had they worked out that it was it better still that to pay up i imagine a financial termination penalty uh was still better than trawling around the world um racing motorbikes i think that you know that was that 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 that's quite alarming and when you see the the you know the where the japanese are in motor gp at the moment it, it is a bit of a worry and you know i fear you know that that house of cards doomsday scenario is one that you can't you, know, you ignore at your peril um question you know, does the world need two world motorbike racing championships? We go around the world once, I think, for MotoGP. I think that's entirely right. It's got status. It's got history. It's got uh, a huge structure. And you, you can tell the difference between the two championships visually when you're at the event. But then could you tell the difference between the two championships if you put Bautista's bike and uh, MotoGP bike in a shopping center in Blue Water down the road here at Brands Ash and say, can you tell me which what these are? Could could many people, if you put an F1 car and a touring car in the shopping centre, I think they'd probably tell the difference, you know, because it's just, they're visually so different. So they're the, they're the things you have to, to think about. And then, I mean, I saw the new World Superbike rules. I must have been, I gave up reading them halfway through because I didn't understand them. I mean, we, we've gone from concessions to super concessions to, I think, even more super concessions. We're talking about 20% off the weight on cranks or something like that well to me that sounds like they're not being pulled back that sounds like there's more freedoms being given to try and equalize it but the reference bike is still per, the, probably the ducati which is not far off motor gp performance so and who could afford all these things and then if it's all down to appease the manufacturers well history has proved in motorsport two wheels and four wheels manufacturers generally have the least reason to stop they will simply say and if be someone completely disconnected, we'll look at a motorsport budget and say that's two million, three million, four million. Put a line through it; the, the decision's made. 
I I always uh, think, and I think this maps the uh, the Erta position was always, and the Dorna position perhaps was definitely giving equity to the teams. Teams are the driving force in 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 these championships. They, if it's to run a team, you do it for a bit. You do it for different reasons than a manufacturer. A manufacturer is a is a big block decision, but it it, it can it can be stopped so quickly, and you know, history has proved at the times we've had manufacturers come in, manufacturers come out, and then. It's a bit sort of sorrowful when you're stuck with a five-year rule package that was established by a group of manufacturers that aren't even in the championship anymore. Aren't the teams dictated to a bit more nowadays, though, by the manufacturers in as much as that most of our manufacturer-run teams, even if they're independent? It's a, it's a tricky one. Moving it back to again to something that we've discussed here before that you might have an input on. With the manufacturers making the rules effectively i think we're all agreed that that's what happens the manufacturers have a unanimous situation where they make the rules the only time it can be changed really by dawner Erta, or anybody else is if there's a safety situation involved in there um shouldn't that be altered in some way as far as the constitution is concerned shouldn't there be a situation where we should have a majority type situation now so it can go away from one manufacturer vetoing what the other five want to do for instance yeah i mean i'm not sure it, it, it's it's their business obviously but certainly if i was uh uh running that type of operation i I don't think i could ever put up with something that could be um you know held to ransom uh in in that way and i think you're absolutely right if one person can deadlock the whole thing you're, you're a bit hamstrung i think majority is um is is fair and equitable and you know i think all the stakeholders need to have a a, a an equal input into the decision. I mean, the promote again. The prom- these things are always done in in layers, aren't they? I mean, the, you know, you've got the the ultimate owner of the championship that is the you know is the custodian. It, it, they are the they are the the, the 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 bigger base. Then you have the the other components above, which are more transient. They are they are passing through, and you can have as many or as little of them, depending on the circumstances at the time. But when the when the the moving parts decide what the base is going to be formed with that just to me seems the wrong way around to the fia if i can ask one last question harry so we got at one, some stage here we've got to go to motor gp because there are going to be a lot of people no, that I, honestly i this is why i like getting people like stuart on because i can kind of just sit back and and listen to you two natter carry did on it, did it did the fia do anything better than what dawn of the motor gp fraternity do is, it, is there anything done in formula one that you could see would benefit MotoGP. <laughs> Your silence is brilliant. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> no, folks, there isn't a fault, <laughs> Stuart. If you're not on YouTube <laughs> to see the uh, the visuals, then um, the answer is um, obviously nothing. Uh, should we move on to a bit of MotoGP, Harry? Oh God! Moving swiftly on, um, Stuart on MotoGP. Well, actually, it, a general one first of all. What have you made of it this year? You know, we've got sprint races that have been introduced this year, and that was a full-on. You know, it wasn't like the Formula One route where you know we'll try four, then we'll try six. You know, throughout the year they were like, right, okay, we're going to rip the bandit off at every round. Um, and I think the statistic was and still is that we haven't had a complete grid of full-time riders at all this season to start a grand prix and a lot of people are putting that down to the fact that we've introduced sprint races what what do you what's your take on it i mean just i, I see it I, whilst I, I'm, I'm professionally involved in some of the events um my just my general feeling is that, that, that the, the, the race weekend has changed in character without any shadow of a doubt i mean from the moment the pit lane opens for the first session on a friday it's it's a hundred percent. It's no. I mean, there was always a feeling in the you know, say the old days is a bit patronising, but you know, you felt you kind of you you fed into a weekend. Whereas now, it's full on. I mean, I think they were they were absolutely right to make the small change to make the first practice um, nothing other than practice, and then uh, the afternoon session is the one that counts for the Q one Q two slots. Uh, but it's the it's the crash rate. I mean, it's just full of it, and there's no such thing as a small MotoGP accident. I mean, they are just. I mean, and the the violence of them, seeing these, you no, know, hugely expensive motorcycles and and you no know, humans being like flung through, you know, at such regular, you no know, regular frequency, it, it, it is quite alarming. I mean, that 
I think of all the motorsports, I mean, you just, in MotoGP, you just see more people crashing more of the time. And, you know, testament to the safety of the, the tracks and the, and the rider personal protection equipment that everyone jumps up straight away. But that, that's the intensity. And then we're straight into a race and the aggression uh, that's shown on the track between the riders is, uh, I mean, if you, I mean, I watched um, the first couple of laps. I think it was the sprint or the main race, uh, the main Grand Prix of the weekend. I can't even remember which one. I was thinking of other things, but some of the moves that are done, are, are absolutely, it is, it is like you, you, it's full send, inch perfect, you know, stuff the consequences, and 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 you know, and the the, you know, the contact causing collisions is the most frequently used word, and. Um, you know, it, 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 it's it's a trend that you know it, it, it's bothersome, and um, I think they you know my my just my intuition, you know the the aggression between the riders, the riders versus the organisation. It's a it's a very angry uh, environment. You know, I'm reading about the, this union being formed, and I read about the you know the um you know, the, just the whole just level of pressure and it is like a cauldron and i think that when you're operating in that and now we've got the most number of races you know it, it it's all an escalation effect and um yeah it, it, it it's a hard place to be i mean not just physically just mentally it comes it comes back to what we were talking about earlier on it, it, we've gone from an a, a, an amateur sport into a very very professional sport we're heading towards formula one when it comes to the anal analysis that goes on about every single nuance that's that's being achieved out on a racetrack and off of it. I mean, we've got a situation where if you don't get your passes done in those early laps, in the early corners of the earliest lap, um, the chances are you will not be in a position to be able to perform later on because tyre temperatures will have put, you know, ballooned the tyres and so on and so forth. There were four riders this weekend who were all below the minimum tyre pressure for more than 50% of the race. Now, when we get to next year, when that gets, they are going to get tangible penalties for that, whereas this year you get a warning. So there's four more riders stroke teams that were under the 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 tyre pressure limit for more than 50% of the race. Because we were in a racetrack that was 60 degrees of, of racetrack temperature, 35 degrees of air temperature, which meant that if they were running in a bunch, their tyre pressures were going to increase. So they started off with much lower tyre temperatures and didn't actually reach the optimum that they needed to reach. I think that it's become so incredibly intense because everybody now realises from the data, personal and mechanical, what they've got to do um, in that early first couple of corners. You're right, Stuart. In the old days, you kind of eased into it. We'd turn up at a race meeting and a cup of tea and go out and do your little bits and pieces, and then you, you go and have a beer in the evening, and then it's the next day. And you do a bit more work and you build into it all the time. A, there wasn't the technical things that you could do with a motorbike to improve it that much. B, we had no clue about fitness, hydration, all the other things that you had. All of this stuff now has come to such a, a professional point, if you like, to a professional plateau, if, if you prefer, um, that there is no escaping it anymore. These things have got to be done to that level to achieve race wins and the desperation almost that you're getting in riders and teams to get to the front from the very first turn of a wheel, when you very first turn up at a place like Mandalika, 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 whatever you call it, in Indonesia, um, is incredible. But it makes the spectacle. I mean, from a, from a spectator's point of view. I mean, I have to say, I sat on my sofa this weekend swapping between a recording of, of, of MotoGP Moto 3 and Moto 2 because I watch them all just the same as ever and BSB um, and I bloody I'll tell you what I had to go and have a bloody shower it was ridiculous I mean the tension I, I felt my stomach hurt from the tension involved in watching motorcycle racing this weekend I mean at, at, at Mandalinka they had a like a blue line if you were at Speedway for instance they're all on about the blue groove aren't they where they wear the, the, the gravel out to, to the point where they've got more drive in there you had a blue groove at Mandalinka. You couldn't move off it. If you moved off it, you were going to go down the road. You know, the, the track had no grip apart from the metre or metre and a half of racing line that you had. It, it, it's become incredibly, incredibly intense. Mental health. You only have to, you know, listen to Tommy, go, go to BSB, Tommy Bridewell and Glenn Irwin. There are two men there that you could hold a conference on regarding their 
mental abilities and what they have to go through to achieve what they do, first and second in the BSB championship. But when you listen to them, you worry about their fragility. And there is so much more of that going on in MotoGP. They probably manage it more and it's more hidden, but it's going on across the board now. I wonder when we get to a point where where it really, really starts to raise its ugly head and that becomes a, a, a major issue at our racetracks. No, I think um, just to just to echo what you say, I think Keith, I think that it is that that intensity, and um, it, it's making is that intensity making the show better? I mean, that that's that's the the key point. I mean, above my shoulder here, there was a you know, do do we what do we think people like to see and and talk about? And remember, do they remember that finite detail that made a difference for someone to go two tenths faster that involved? some of the things that we're seeing now on the track or do they remember a race like that? I think uh, you better fill Harry in on that one. Is that the, the Rossi Casey Stoner at the corpse yeah, group? Yeah. And you um, do have to wonder now if that race happened now in the modern era, I mean, the, you know, we will be screaming track limits and God knows what else and, and be the source of ridicule for weeks to come. Whereas there it was accepted. It, it was what it was. For um for our audio listeners as well as me, can you just describe what the the posters you have up behind you? Because you've got the corkscrew one, and then you've also got the the Marlboro Transatlantic Trophy poster. Oh yeah, well, we've got an old uh, Brands Hatch poster from '79. Um, I think were you in the match races that year or not? Yeah, I mean, Kate, of course it was. Yeah, okay, there you go. Um, hey, there's a, I'll tell you what. There's the the picture on my Twitter feed. If you have a look at it, I've put a black and white picture up there. You'll appreciate it. It's, uh, it's at Mallory Park, unfortunately, not Brands Hatch. Um, where I'm leading the pack. Um, it's my very first ever transatlantic. They gave me number 16, so I kept it domestically for the rest of my uh, racing career in the UK. And the bike that I'm on has an aluminium... This is really, really... This will make Stuart laugh. As an aluminium belly pan, which was the factory fairing on the, on the TZ750 back then, which immediately got squashed um, some laps later. <laughs> Written off completely. Oh, brilliant well if you uh, if you are an audio only listener i encourage you to check out our youtube channel because then you can see uh, the fantastic posters behind stuart um you mentioned stuart uh you read about the riders union uh poised to uh be formed with uh i think it's sylvan gentoli isn't it uh who's uh rumored to be at the helm of that um what are your thoughts on that has there not been one ever that's how we well, get- started yeah, I mean, when so, um, Mike Trimby was the riders' representative, there was a, a union of riders, and uh, it was the riders' group, and um, Mike was the figurehead for it. And, and is it because of Mike's passing that this has all come about, or is, is this going to offer something different? I mean, honestly, I'm not too close to the situation. I, mean, I saw Sylvain in the airport uh, at Delhi. Uh, he was on the same flight as me coming back after the Grand Prix, and I said, uh, oh, you must be, uh, do I call you Arthur Scargill now? And I don't think he knew what I was talking about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and... Uh, we were too tired and we're just too sensitive about what we were about to eat and didn't want an uncomfortable flight, so we didn't pursue the conversation much longer. But uh, it's uh, look, I think there's a uh, look, it's it, you know, all these championship paddocks. I mean, ours is the same, it is like a bubble, and um, what goes on in that bubble is, is pretty intense. And um, yeah, I guess they want to, you know, I mean. I mean, to be fair to say, I mean, like, you know, every uh, Friday at a Motor GP, they have what something called the Safety Commission meeting, which is a, a, a it, it, uh, as I understand it, it is open to any rider uh, to attend to to race thing. And, and whilst it's called the Safety Commission, I think anything is on the table to talk about. And you know, they get the they get Kamala at the table. So I mean, you can't get any bigger than the the principal of the championship. And um, yeah, so perhaps they need to do something else. But you know, we we. We had a we have a, a similar thing in BSB. I mean, it's, it's a bit less technical. It's called a WhatsApp group um, for four of the main riders in the championship. Uh, that's Josh Brooks, uh, Glenn Irwin, Leon Haslam, and Christian Iden. We equally meet every weekend to go through just just everything really. I mean, it it, it can range from talking about tyres or safety or race formats through to can we have a different parking spot at whatever track we go to, but. They then disseminate that information back to the main group. But the, the actual nicer thing about it is the riders have their own group, which is they're all in it. And it does a far better job, frankly, than we do as um, race direction for calling people out. If someone's done a bit of a wild move or has been sort of doing something a bit daft in qualified, a bit dolloping around on the racing line, they're called out quite public. I mean, every now and again, I get a few people leak the content of it, as you, as you would expect. 
and it's great because it's, they're, they're holding each other to account in a in quite a good way. I mean, they all they all want the thing to be successful, and I, and I think that's the only thing that I feel sometimes intuitively in the World Championships and perhaps in Superbike as well is we've gone from an era and where a lot of stuff was self policing. There was a code of conduct or just a, and a just a a way of doing things and professional responsibility and and just if you did something I if you're well, you're Please, this Keith. I mean, uh, if you did something daft and you basically lifted Jim Moody in a practice session somewhere, you'd probably get a little tap on the caravan door, sh- shortly followed by a slightly harder tap. Now, I'm not advocating everyone should go around whacking each other, but you kind of knew you wouldn't do something because you knew there'd be consequences, and that was kind of self-limited. Now, all that's been flipped on his head and it all falls at the feet of the stewards and and and, and every session of a of a grand prix now and i we get it to i see it in other championships as well it's a stream of oh on lap three of free practice one i was disturbed on turn five can you please take a look and it's like really trouble is in the old days you know a move was one of those situations where it was blatantly stupid that, um, but now you've got such incredibly tight racing where they're to three decimal points on a lap. You know, there's hardly anything between any of the bikes here, there, and everywhere. You all, you need the officials to be involved in keeping things on track. We've got not gravel and grass at the edge anymore. We've got tarmac. We we'd have them using all of the time. You know, turn seven, eight, and nine in Mandalinka was was one of my favourite parts of the track. But of course, you could run, you could cut the corners and make up so much time to it. Brad Binder, I mean, he held his hands up and said he 100% deserved both of his long lap penalties. He probably should have got a third one as well uh, for, for for the sprint race. But the point being is is that, you know, he did ram into another rider and cause another rider to, to go off course. I think it's become so incredibly intense hmm. that you can't trust the riders anymore to, no, no, to but police it's like- at that level. Is there was a point when there wasn't so much uh, judicial interference and and penalties, and then it then it changed. And I, I can't actually remember the day. I mean, I can remember the first time track limits uh, became a thing. It was the first Grand Prix on the new layout at Silverstone, and people were cutting the curb at Ch- Chapel, and my marshals were reporting it, and there wasn't any cameras or anything like that. And I remember Paul Butler was the race director. He went, what was that? I went, number six, uh, track limits, Chapel. What do you mean? I said, well, they're at the other side of the, the curb. They've cut, oh, right, okay. And the, and it was so antiquated. It was that Paul then wrote on a bit of paper, number six, something there, walked to the timing room, which was next door, and they all go, we'll put it on the screen. What was the phrase again? I said, no, I said, number six exceeded track limits at turn whatever it was. And that became the phraseology that was used ever since. And that was the point you know, I can remember it starting. So before 2010, it sort of wasn't a thing, but then... We go a bit further, like say 2006, I think it was, or one of the Rossi Grand Prix at uh, Donington, where he overtook under a yellow flag going into Redgate, and and that I think was the only judicial thing, not just that weekend. It might have been um, that year, or if it wasn't that year, I think he also did a similar thing and acted was given a 10 second penalty in a race at Phillip Island, and he duly made up the 10 seconds in the race and still went and won the race. But that was only one of one or two things that year. Now. I still don't remember in that sort of period there being these huge injustices. But so, is there now? I mean, no, I'm asking you the questions now. Is there a point now where the whole character of riders and racers has changed? That we have a different character of rider that is riding in a different way that just does it all a bit differently. Yeah, we have, and I think that that my worry with a riders' union, if you like, I mean, I. I think there's plenty of avenues for riders to make their complaints and their observations fairly clear to some fairly good people in the paddock who can make a difference to get that sorted out. I, I worry about a riders' union to some extent. I mean, when we had the rain at Silverstone, if you remember, a few years ago, horrible, horrible, horrible delays. And I always remember Scott Redding turning around and saying, let's just get on with it. you know. And that I think from a fan's perspective, that's what you feel like sometimes in these situations. Whereas Alicia Spargro would, of course, he'd have been on an aeroplane on Saturday afternoon or whatever it was. You know, he'd, he'd had enough already and made a decision on that. So I, I, a riders' union worries me very slightly because I think that the, you're, you're right, on the safety commission on a Friday is open to everybody um, and you can all attend it. But very few people attend it regularly. 
Uh, it's a situation. I always, uh, you know, Bradley Smith always used to say that that, that you know he'd, he'd be there every single Friday. Um, but half the team, half the riders that were complaining about stuff wouldn't turn up at the at the safety commission meeting in the in the evening on a Friday. Um, so it'll be interesting to see whether a, a riders' union moves things any further forward, other than giving us more delays which of course is where we are with all the other rules and regulations now as regards to track limits and so on and so forth. I mean, it's difficult for an old old school rider like me to, to, to enjoy the amount of track limits again, but I do appreciate that because we are dealing in thousands of a second, soon to be ten thousands of a second, if you ask me, I think we'll be going timing-wise to four decimal points in the not-too-distant future. You know, you've got to then limit what you can do off track to keep it yeah. fair. Now, I mean, I have to say, I mean, look, I, I dip in and out of a MotoGP stewards panel, and there's been quite a big change this year. I mean, listeners and viewers won't probably appreciate or maybe not even care, but I mean, in the past, the stewards' functions were actually sort of embedded within the race control environment, which, in a, and, and GPs, I mean, it's quite challenging. I mean, I you've, you've visited me on many occasions, Keith, and you know my race direction room is basically me and, a, me and a couple of other people, and that is it, and it's the same every weekend because it's it's permanent people we work in a um no quite isolation very quiet and uh it's very easy to make the decisions that we do but you go from country to country i mean i think the the dawner and fam hierarchy like coming to silverstone because they get basically me and one other and then they occupy the room with their own functions so but it's just me but you can go to a circuit like uh, le mans for example and there can be their race control as about 30 odd people in there so as america same as some other kind so you never get the same room room configuration, if you like, two weeks running, um, which which is which is hard operationally. So what was done this year, um, a bit like what happens in Formula One, where Formula One the stewards are actually disconnected from racing and have all their feeds independently. That's what happens in MotoGP now. The stewards are, now have an FIM stewards ops room where they have all the circuit uh, and TV feeds coming in, all the track limits. Uh, data uh, capture points which is a combination of cameras and sensors uh, with Dorna uh, operators and that's watched over by the permanent stewards and it is a very efficient operation it, it's not down to chance or anything like that it, it, it's it's very clever technical people have put this together and I'm you know hugely uh, impressed with it and I, I enjoy being part of it and um They've got it now, and I would say from a, an F1 MotoGP comparison, I would say MotoGP is 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 ahead on some of the things. I mean, the, I mean the Qatar Grand Prix for cars, and I think the Austrian Grand Prix for cars, they were still figuring out track limits about sort of ten hours or a few hours after the race and changing the result. Well, that's not a thing in MotoGP because they, they've they've looked at external systems, had them absorb what they can and can't do and and the Dorna tech department they are world class i mean you've you've seen it with their te te tv technology um simple things i mean we introduced them first to the um the slow sector monitoring uh, i had it well, we had a support race at the british grand prix and i had our timing system on in the background where it was doing the support race but it kept, left it on for Maddie gp and there was people they were worried about Maddie three people touring so i just because everyone uses a common transponder system i left the system on and there were multiple people touring. I printed a report. Like, there you go. That's how they are. I went, how have you done that? So basically, it's a very similar software program that basically just is comparing set, uh, consecutive sectors. And if someone is riding above a percentage uh, de time degradation uh, delta, we'll, um, we, we, can, we can just alert you. And they went, brilliant. Within two weeks, they devised their own system. And it was probably better than ours now. But um, that, that's their speed of reaction. But I'd, I'd say with their... Their stewards technology that they have in there, they have every angle covered and, you know, it, it, it is good. And I and I, I will defend uh, them. I work with them. They are good people. Freddie gets an incredible amount of criticism uh, because he's an easy target. And there's a lot of people that have a pop at him that, frankly, they, they and, and I've, I've actually seen the pe people and uh, on occasion said, there's the subject that you're always tweeting about. Why don't you say it to his face? And guess what? They never do. Mm, yeah classic isn't it when uh he calls somebody out like that Look, i mean it's so listening to you Stuart, it's so insightful we are literally over time i've i want to chuck one last question at you uh this has come from pete um and uh, not not pete mclaren pete from the world of our listeners uh we had a few listener questions in but we've only got time for one and it's about bsb uh for next season first round in spain 
What can the British fans expect ticket wise? Are there going to be sort of large screens around the track? What's access going to be like? What can you tell us? Yeah, I mean, Navarra is a circuit in uh, northern Spain. Uh, the town of Pamplona is close by, which is very famous for uh, the great idea of people running down the street chased by a herd of bulls. Um, I think that's going to be our track limits penalty, perhaps. We'll just like <laughs> throw people down there. But very nice part of the world. Um, new circuit uh, for us acquired um, end of 2000 and, I think 2001. Um, it's about two and a half miles long, two and six miles long. Uh, it will have the fastest corner in the championship, uh, 165 mile an hour turn one. It was used for World Superbikes in 2001, uh, 2021, uh, and was um, you know, quite well received. Uh, we're making constant. Uh, we've got plans to do some uh, more work there to 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 enhance it. Um, but you know, we've been outside of uh, UK mainland uh, before. We uh, used to travel to the Republic of Ireland, uh, as Keith will remember. Um, in 2003, 4, 5, 6 and 7 I think it was uh, then of course Latterly Assen so we are used to going on a mode of transport to go outside of the UK uh, it's good for the championship it, it, it allows us our riders uh, to see international standard circuits uh, it puts us on the map in different places uh, we have to be very sensitive and uh, careful with the cost but, but no, half the paddock or probably more than the paddock all have no problem of their own volition going to Spain testing in February and March of any particular year. So now we're saying, hey, well, when you're going to Spain, this is the place you need to test that, and we're going to race at the same place we test that, which is a bit more logical. Uh, and we start a little bit later, which allows for a lot more preparation time, budget acquisition time. So it's going to be really good. Uh, we're going to no, we're going to handle all the tickets because obviously we are we have that function within the, in the group. Um, it, there will be local, uh, you know, we were planning on uh, camping and a lot of stuff that you would, you'd regularly, regularly get as Spanish, uh, hotels are of a good standard and largely cheaper than UK equivalents. Um, flights are pretty cheap as well. So it's going to be an, an, be an adventure now we're, we're hugely looking forward to it. And again, coming off the back of this weekend, you know, it, it's good to be able to springboard. Now we're going to our, our next adventure coming off the back of a strong season will be, uh, something completely new. Which is which is hugely exciting. Fantastic! I tell you what, I'm looking forward to Thursday now because we've got a lot of MotoGP stuff for extra on Thursday that uh, we'll be out on the OMG podcast. That's for sure because we've got a lot to cover. I think this week as well. But what insights, Stuart? I've got to say, from my perspective, really, really brilliant to have you on here. Uh, Yeah, and your voice isn't too croaky after the uh, massive piss up (laughs) you would have had in the paddock last night. Uh, there was a few <laughs> Look, that is uh, literally all we have time for Stuart thank you so much for coming on the show uh, you'll come back for a part two right yeah look I'd love to I, I, I'm hugely supportive of the podcast that you did in the previous guys uh, and I was actually pretty annoyed it got to stop but you know, that, that's a, a story for another day but you know, listen having uh, people that challenge the, the, the subjects that there I believe there is a journalistic uh, decay currently uh in the sport medicine the true story needs to be told things need to be challenged i'm happy to provide insight where i can i'm here to be able to count on my own championship and um to be able to have the platform to do it is is i think uh, hugely appreciated and i think is what the audience deserves that's absolutely fantastic look Stuart higgs thank you so much for for joining us on the omg moto gp podcast uh, as keith said we will be back on thursday for extra uh for more updates and it's australia as well this weekend isn't it so it's uh bang straight into another one uh if you're a you one of our uk listeners it's another early start or a late finish uh any questions you want asked in the build-up to that email us omgmotogp at gmail.com uh, this has been a Motormouth Media production if you're an F1 fan you can check out the Motormouth F1 podcast or as we're all now big paddle fans you can check out the Paddle Movement podcast check that one out um, in the meantime though do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show on it means so much we know more and more people are finding us again for the first time rediscovering us still um, we appreciate that so just please keep keep finding us if you haven't found us already and share share the podcast far and wide uh, so do leave us a review and we should be back here on Thursday but from myself Harry Venture and from Keith Ewan and from Stuart Higgs we'll see you next time bye bye <laughs>